0: ...following a transcribe... ...on the top the Lower State Theatre Building... ...the tremendous one
1: from ...tales of intrigue... ...adventure... ...and a mysterious occult... ...that will stir your imagination... ...and make your very blood... ...run cold. This is Dark Adventure... ...Radio Theatre... ...featuring our guest host... ...Barnaby Dickens. Today's special holiday episode... A Solstice Carol.
2: Good evening, devoted listeners. My name is Barnaby Dickens. Your usual host is enjoying a holiday vacation with his family, and your good friends at Dark Adventure Radio Theater allowed me to take the opportunity to bring you a seasonal treat to enjoy on a dark winter's eve. Solstice, after all, is the longest night of the year. To celebrate the season, we bring you a dark tale, brimming with nameless cults, charnel creatures, and one of our listeners' favorite authors himself, H.P. Lovecraft. But first, a word from our Yuletide sponsor.
3: Friends, at this very special time of year, we celebrate with our loved ones and remember those who are most important to us. And there's no more sincere and meaningful way to tell someone I've been thinking of you than with a delicious holiday fruitcake. Each Nujafru Yule Cake features a special blend of exotic candied fruits and crunchy tropical nuts, blended with our special flavorings to capture the true meaning of Christmas in every magical bite. Our fruit cakes are made with care by Cistercian monks in scenic Mount Laurel and shipped by mail all across the world. And they won't take up room in your icebox, cause Nujafru Cakes stay fresh for weeks right out on the counter. Order one for everyone on your holiday list. Kids love them.
4: Mommy, can I have some more fruitcake? Of course, darling.
0: Say, cut me a slice, too.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Feel the true spirit of the season. Give a Nujafru fruitcake. This message
1: brought to you by our sponsor, the New Jersey Fruitcake Company. And now Mr. Barnaby Dickens returns to the microphone to present his eldritch holiday tale, A Solstice Carol.
2: I have endeavoured in this spirited little story to raise the ghost of an idea which shall not put my listeners out of humour with themselves, with each other, with the season, or with me. May it haunt their houses pleasantly. And in incorporating the esteemed Mr. Lovecraft into my tale, Not the slightest disrespect is intended. We celebrate the man, his work, and the sentiments of the season. Stave One, Farley's Ghost. Old Mason Farley was dead as a doornail, as the saying goes. He shuffled off his mortal coil some eighteen months past, and since then the writer of strange tales of mystery and imagination had been sorely missed. During his life, his name appeared on the covers of all the most daring pulp magazines, often more than once. His stories had been translated into French, German, even Swedish, and they were collected into books with thrilling cover art. He was rich, famous, and he lived, well, let us say a life of worldly hedonism, for his success ensured that all worldly temptations were readily available to him. And yet, in spite of his riches and travels, his publishers and women, Farley was now, most decidedly, dead, and would write no more. It was a rather cold and blustery Christmas Eve when young Howard Phillips Lovecraft, or HP as he preferred to be known in literary circles, wended his way down College Hill in Providence, Rhode Island. He made his modest living as an editor and reviser of other people's fiction. But he was himself an author, and like Farley, a writer of strange stories of a macabre bent. But he could only dream of the success enjoyed by his famous elder. Lovecraft's stories seemed unsaleable, even in the pulp magazines, for whom strange and ghoulish tales were actively sought. Worse still, of late Lovecraft had found himself the victim of the author's cruelest torment, a crippling case of writer's block. And so... In search of distraction, if not inspiration, he ventured to his neighborhood newsstand.
5: Eight,
2: nine, and ten.
6: Ah, Mr. Lovecraft. Always a pleasure. Jasper? Ah, I know what you're after. They came in this morning. Astonishing tales. Let me get you one. Dare I ask whose story is on the cover? Do you need to? It's a mason folly. Of course it is. The panther lady of Aqualva. They just keep publishing them. The man's in his
5: grave more than a year, and he's still selling them stories. Your story's not selling, Mr. Val? It's rejection after rejection. I embrace the styles of the masters. Poe, Blackwood, Dunsany, Macken, but nothing lands. Nothing finds a place with these editors. Shucks. Maybe it's time to try something new. Like what? Write one in your style. Lovecraft style. That'd surely be even more disastrous than my other efforts. The public loves these Farley stories. It seems the more inane and hopelessly contrived they are, the more these low-brow morons like them.
6: Ah, good afternoon, Curtis. I know what you're here for. Astonishing tales.
5: Just came in. Hot potatoes. A new Farley story? This is great. Oh, you got it too, eh, buddy? Um, yes. Uh, There's nobody like Farley, eh? Lucky for us. Huh? Oh, I get it. (laughs) Merry Christmas, buddy. Christmas. Bah. Another lowbrow contrivance. Don't you know that Christmas is just the pale imitation of an older, darker, more interesting holiday? An ancient ritual of life and death now covered in tinsel and candy canes. Uh, Whatever you say, pal. I like it. See you, Jasper. See what I mean? Chin up, Mr. L.
6: Stick with it. I bet you'll get more stories published.
5: I take no comfort in your baseless optimism. Anything else for you? I can afford not else, Jasper. I can barely afford my next meal. I'm saving up for a new thesaurus. Used up all the words in the old one, huh? Very droll. Your nickel,
6: sir. Thank you, sir. Hey, Merry Christmas anyway. Bah, Christmas is a
2: humbug. More despondent than ever, our beleaguered writer indulged himself in a holiday treat suited to his humble means.
4: Oh my really blowing out there
5: it is indeed inclement
4: well at least we'll have a white Christmas Ah. now Howard no need to be like that what can I get you the
5: usual if you would
4: Ah, I got your funny book there
5: it is not a funny book Harriet astonishing tales is an anthology of weird fiction
0: oh okay
5: the panther lady
0: there you are Lovecraft I was looking for you at home
5: hello Thurber
4: why Howard Do you have a friend?
5: No, he's my neighbor.
4: Well, it's nice to meet you. Coffee?
5: Oh, no thanks. I thought
0: I'd try you here. Don't tell me you're having your usual coffee and donut on Christmas Eve.
5: Why not? There's nothing so very special about Christmas Eve.
0: Ah, Lovecraft. No particular plans for tomorrow, I suppose?
5: No, I'll just be working. I have a ghostwriting client that needs- Well, we
0: can't have that. Come with me tomorrow. A little outing up to Boston. Boston? I'm going to see my pal Richard up there. He's an artist, quite a guy, some really creepy and sinister stuff. Just like those stories you write. You two will hit it off like gangbusters. What do you say?
4: You should go, Howard. Here's your donut.
5: I'm afraid I cannot.
0: Oh, come on, Howard. I already talked to your aunts about it. They thought it was a swell idea, and I'm telling you you're going to love Richard's paintings. There's a couple of them that... Well, they'd even give you the heebie-jeebies. Bah!
5: Howard, it'll be fun! It's Christmas! What does Christmas have to do with anything? That which men call Christmas is an ancient thing. The Yuletide, it's older than Bethlehem. It's older than Babylon or Memphis. You can keep your Christmas. Give me the solstice. Hey, I was just... I'm a night owl, and the solstice is my favorite day of the year because it has the longest night. The dark, the cold, and the solitude are my companions. I'll be working until dawn and not taking any trips on the morrow, thank you. Providence is my home, my very soul, and I have no wish to leave it. If I crave human companionship, I have a great many correspondents with whom I can visit from the comfort of my own rooms, and for the price of a postage stamp. That's all I want. That's all I need.
4: It's Christmas. You shouldn't be working alone on Christmas.
5: At night, when the objective world has slunk back into its cavern and left dreamers to their own, there come inspirations and capabilities impossible at any less magical and quiet hour. No one knows whether or not he is a rider unless he has tried riding at night.
4: Doesn't sound very festive to me.
5: Harriet, I have always felt a great relief that you are unable to understand me, and an even greater relief that I am unable to understand you. <laughs>
4: You're such
0: a darling.
5: Humbug. For a young man, you're quite a curmudgeon, Lovecraft. I shall take that as a compliment.
0: Well, it's not too late to change your mind. If you want to come, just knock on my door tomorrow morning. I'm catching the 1015. Merry Christmas, Lovecraft, and give my greetings to your aunts.
5: Keep Christmas in your own way, and let me keep it in mine. Let me see here. Shimu, the queen of the panther ladies, strutted sinuously as the pounding beat of the jungle drums Humbug.
2: And thus with tidings of neither comfort nor joy did Howard finish his donut and coffee as he leafed through the pages of astonishing tales. He then braved the elements and returned home to the small house on College Hill that he shared with his aunts.
4: Howard? Howard? Howard, is that you?
5: Yes, Aunt Lillian.
4: You've been out so long and in this weather. Here, let me make you some cocoa. Thank
5: you. No, Aunt Annie.
4: Did Mr. Thurber find you?
5: Yes, he did. Never mind about that.
4: Here, let me take your coat. Oh, a new issue of Astonishing Tales. Anything
7: good?
5: More of the same, I fear.
7: Oh, Howard, the postman had a letter for you. It's from True Terror magazine. Here.
5: Probably another rejection.
7: Now, Howard, aren't you going to open it? You never know.
5: Very well. Well? Dear Mr. Lovecraft, thank you for your submission. We find your tale lacks human interest, and your stylistic homage to 19th century writers holds little appeal to modern readers. Further, your overwrought vocabulary is ill suited to ghastly subjects, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. More of the same.
7: Oh, pooh. What did they know? Which story did you send them?
5: What does it matter?
7: Ah, oh, well, I love your stories. Give me those terrifying monsters of yours any day. Well,
4: that's fine, but I think your sense of cosmic dread is really what sets your riding apart. I think you should go back to that.
5: I think I should go up to my room.
7: Oh, Howard, don't be like that. It's Christmas Eve.
5: You should go with Thurber to... I'm buried in work. I have to finish revising this client's nonsense story.
4: Let me make you a sandwich. I'll
5: just make myself some beans and toast.
4: Well, at least turn up the heat in there. Your room is colder than Edgar Allan Poe's
7: tomb.
5: I like it the way it is, thank you.
7: You stick with it, Howard Lovecraft. You'll be a great writer one day. I just
4: know it. We believe in you. What about some cake?
2: Good night. And thus rebuffing maternal kindness, our author entered his sparsely furnished room and sat heavily in the old wooden chair before his desk. And with his plate of toast and beans to provide sustenance, he worked late into the night. It was no easy feat before him, for his client had sent him a particularly amateurish tale, a formulaic romance in which a drab housewife grappled with perfectly ordinary domestic troubles. Howard toiled on the story into the small hours.
5: But I yearn to unchain myself and leap upon my heart's secret desires. Expounded Agnes as she folded the dungarees.
8: <sighs>
5: uh, ye God! What am I supposed to do with this drivel? I'm not a miracle worker. I'm just a ghostwriter. <gasps> a stupid ghostwriter. Ghost.
2: What's that? Lovecraft started at the sound. There was but one typewriter in the house, and it sat in this very room, yea, right upon the very desk where he nodded. No one had touched the device, but he had most distinctly heard the sound of fingers, striking the keys hmm i must have dreamt it dreaming of ghosts the ghost of the typewriter and as the author prepared to move from his desk and settle properly into bed he heard another sound distinctly approaching up the stairs outside his bedroom door i must be dreaming still
5: but this racket the hackneyed sound of ghostly chains i'm a
2: better dreamer than that Indeed, Lovecraft was a grand dreamer, with nightly visions of magnificent architecture in spectacular realms where the commonplace was non-existent. But not this night. The sound grew louder, and in a moment its source entered the room, passing straight through the door. Before young Lovecraft stood an apparition, a spectre, a ghost, and a terrifyingly familiar one at that, bearing the face of Mason Farley. He had seen this face on the dust jackets of books, and on countless pulp adventure magazines, but now the dashing face, once so handsome and self-assured, looked gaunt, pained, and racked with untold agonies. And about this ghastly apparition was draped a massive chain, to which were fastened many bottles of liquor, vials of pills, and countless calendars and clocks.
5: What do you want with me?
9: Mm, Much. Who are you? Ask me who I was.
5: Who were you, then?
9: In life I was called Mason Farley, celebrated author of Uncanny Tale. Can you sit down? I prefer to stand. You don't believe in me? I don't. What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your senses? I don't know. Why do you doubt your senses?
5: Because I am a scientific materialist. Ghosts are fine, if somewhat cliched in literature, but they don't exist in real life. I see.
2: At this, the spirit raised a frightful (laughs) cry and shook its chain with such a dismal and appalling noise that Mouthpast held on tight to his chair to save himself from falling in a swoon.
5: Dreadful apparition, why do you trouble me?
2: Scientific materialist, do you believe in me or not? For the sake
5: of argument, let's say I do. But why should spirits walk the earth? Why do you come
9: to me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk among his fellow men. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world and witness what it might have shared on earth and turn to happiness.
5: You are fettered. Tell me why.
9: I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link, and yard by yard, propping myself up with drink and drug, shallow acquaintances with shallow people, living to sell my writings, not living to write. And you, young man, are already forging your chain. And from the looks of it, it shall be far more ponderous.
5: I don't understand, Mr. Farley. I'm nothing like you. No! On what do you toil? In whose voice do you write? Well, I... No one would like my stories. So you say. What should I do? Speak comfort to me, Mr. Farley.
9: I have none to give. Very little is all that's permitted to me. I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger anywhere. Oh, Lovecraft. No amount of regret can make amends for one's life's opportunity misused. Yet... Such was I. Oh, Such was I.
5: But you were always a popular writer.
9: Popular? Any man can be popular! The true writer is honest. He is bold. He brings his very heart to create words upon the page. I did none of this. I was... popular. Mason
2: Folly wasn't even my real name. The ghost held up its chain at arm's length, as if that were the cause of all its unavailing grief, and flung it heavily upon the ground.
5: Well, um, being published is... Hear me! My time is nearly gone. I will, but don't be hard upon me.
9: I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope. Of escaping my fate, Lovecraft. That is kind of you. You will be haunted by three spirits. That's your chance and hope? It is. I... I think I'd rather not. Without their visits, your doom is certain. Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. Couldn't they come at once and be done with it? Expect the second on the next night. At the same hour. The third upon the next night. Look to see me no more. And for your own sake, you
2: remember what has passed between us." The apparition walked backward from him to the now-open window. It beckoned Lovecraft to approach. When they were within two paces of each other, Farley's ghost held up its hand, warning him to come no nearer. Lovecraft stopped and realized he heard confused noises in the air, incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret. The specter, after listening for a moment, Joined in the mournful dirge, and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Lovecraft looked out. The air was filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in restless haste, and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Farley's ghost. None were free. Whether these creatures faded into mist, or mist enshrouded them, he could not tell. But they and their spirit voices faded together and the night became as it had been when he walked home. Lovecraft closed the window and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was shut, tight. Hum- He tried to say humbug, but stopped at the first syllable. And being, from the emotion he had undergone, or his glimpse of the invisible world, or the lateness of the hour, much in need of repose, he went straight to bed without undressing and fell asleep upon the instant. Stave 2. The Ghost of Solstice Past. Lovecraft awoke, and it was so dark that, looking out of bed, he could scarcely distinguish the transparent window from the opaque walls of his chamber. The chimes of St. Stephen's Church struck. The ghost warned me
5: that a visitation would come when the clock struck one. So like Farley to spout
2: such nonsense. But just then, a soft light flashed in the room. Lovecraft sat up in a half-recumbent attitude and found himself face to face with an unearthly visitor. It was a strange figure, like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old woman, yet not so like an old woman as a partially decomposed human being. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white as if with age, and yet the face had not a wrinkle in it. The arms were very long and sinewy, the hands the same, as if its hold were of uncommon strength. It wore a tunic of the purest white, and round its waist was bound a lustrous belt, the sheen of which was beautiful. It held a branch, with five twigs emerging from it, three above and two below. Even this, though, when Lovecraft looked at it with increasing steadiness, was not its strangest quality. The figure itself fluctuated in its distinctness, being now a thing with one arm, now a thing with one leg, now with twenty legs, now a pair of legs without a head, now a head without a body, of which dissolving parts no outline would be visible in the dense gloom wherein they melted away. Are you the spirit whose
5: coming was foretold to me? I am. Who and what are you?
7: I am the ghost of Solstice Past my past your ancestral
5: past ah what brings you here your welfare ah that's most kind
2: but a night of unbroken rest might have the spirit thrust out its strong hand and clasped lovecraft gently by the arm
7: rise and walk with me
2: the grasp though gentle as a woman's hand was not to be resisted he rose but finding that the spirit made towards the window stopped suddenly
5: i am immortal
2: and liable to fall
7: bear but a touch of my hand upon your heart and you shall be upheld in more than this
2: as the words were spoken they passed through the wall and stood upon an open country road covered in shallow new fallen snow providence had entirely vanished not a vestige of it was to be seen ahead of them lay a great hill where the twisting willows writhed against the clearing sky and the first stars of evening.
5: That sound. The sea. Where are we? Do you not know it? It's... it's Kingsport. A very ancient town I've never seen but often dreamed of. The sea town where in dreams my people dwelt and kept festival in the elder time when festival was forbidden. Is it real?
7: Men of broader intellect know that there is no sharp distinction betwixt the real and the unreal.
5: The Festival! My ancestors bade future generations to keep Festival.
7: It is true. They commanded their sons to keep Festival once every century that the memory of primal secrets might not be forgotten. Yours were an old people, and were old even when this land was settled three hundred years before. And now they were scattered, and shared only the rituals and mysteries that none living could understand. Come, let us see.
2: Beyond the hill's crest they looked upon Kingsport, outspread frostily in the gloaming, with its ancient veins and steeples, ridgepoles poles and chimney pots, Wharves and small bridges, endless labyrinths of steep, narrow, crooked streets, antiquity hovering on grey wings over winter whitened gables and gambrel roofs, fanlights and small pane windows, one by one, gleaming out in the cold dusk to join Orion and the archaic stars. Beside the road, a still higher summit rose, bleak and windswept. A burying ground where black gravestones stuck ghoulishly through the snow like the decayed fingernails of a gigantic corpse.
5: You're trembling. You know this place. They hanged four kinsmen of mine for witchcraft in 1692, but I never imagined just where. Please, good spirit, lead me where you will.
7: You know the way.
5: No, but I'm sure I can find it. It's as if they're waiting
2: for me. They walked together as the road wound down the seaward slope and into snow-blanketed Kingsport. It's so very quiet.
5: But these are all Puritan folk. Perhaps they have yuletide customs strange to me and full of silent hearthside prayer.
2: The two kept on, down past the hush-lighted farmhouses and shadowy stone walls to where the signs of ancient shops and sea taverns creaked in the soft breeze and the grotesque knockers of pillared doorways glistened along deserted, unpaved lanes in the light of little curtained windows. Just then, Lovecraft espied a lone figure walking toward the seventh house on the left in Green Lane. Spirit, look there, approaching
5: that house with the diamond window panes. Can it be? I'd swear it was my thrice great-grandfather, Jebediah Phillips. I've seen his portrait, but He's so young. So it would seem. He's reaching for the iron knocker on that door. Can we follow him? These are but shadows of the things that have been.
7: They have no consciousness of us.
5: My ancestral home.
2: I almost dread to see who will answer. A thrill of cold fear passed through Lovecraft as the door opened to reveal a gowned, slippered old man. But the bland face reassured him. Why, he's mute. See, spirit, how he gestures, and writes a quaint and ancient welcome with the stylus and wax tablet he carries. The old man beckoned Phillips to enter, with Lovecraft and the spirit invisibly close behind. The door opened into a low, candlelit room with dark, stiff, sparse furniture of the 17th century. There was a dark and cavernous fireplace and a spinning wheel at which a bent old woman sat back toward him, silently spitting, despite the festive season. It's so damp and cold. You'd think a fire should be blazing on such a night. Despite the patent antiquity, Lovecraft did not like everything about what he saw. A creeping sense of dread grew stronger, and the more Lovecraft looked on the old man's bland face, the more its very blandness terrified him.
5: His eyes never move, spirit, and the skin is too like wax. I don't believe it's a face at all. But a fiendishly cunning mask. And those flabby hands curiously gloved. See, he writes a message
7: to your grandfather on the tablet.
5: You must wait a while before you can be led to the place of festival.
2: Because an old tradition had summoned him to strange feastings, Lovecraft's thrice great grandfather resolved to expect queer things and silently took a seat to wait. But Lovecraft looked about the room. Spirit,
5: look at these books. Morister's wild marvels of science. Sadusismus Triumphatus of Joseph Glanville, published in 1681. Demon Alatria of Remigius, printed in 1595 at Lyon. Good lord. The Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Al-Hazrit in Wormius's translation. Look here. Thoughts and legends too hideous for sanity or consciousness. The nethermost caverns are not for the fathoming of eyes that see, for their marvels are strange and terrific. Cursed is the ground where dead thoughts live anew and oddly bodied.
2: No one spoke. Lovecraft thought the room and the books and the people very morbid and disquieting, and it was certainly nervous waiting. Spirit, I'm not sure I like this place.
7: See, here returns the old man.
2: The old man now wore a hooded cloak and draped another round the old woman, who ceased her monotonous spinning. Then they both started for the outer door, the woman lamely creeping, and the old man, after picking up the very book Lovecraft had been reading, beckoned Phillips as he drew his hood over that unmoving face or mask. Lovecraft's thrice-great-grandfather rose and silently joined them, seeming to know their purpose spirit are we going to the festival this isn't what i
5: expected
7: the past never is
2: they went out into the moonless and torturous network of that incredibly ancient town went out as the lights in the curtain windows disappeared one by one and the dog star leered at the throng of cowled cloaked figures that poured silently from every doorway and formed monstrous processions up this street and that threading precipitous lanes where decaying houses overlapped and crumbled together, gliding across open courts and churchyards where bobbing lanterns made eldritch-drunken constellations. Following close behind his ancestor, Lovecraft was pressed amid the crowds. Spirit, these
5: voiceless guides trouble me. Their bodies seem abnormally pulpy and soft, and their hooded cloaks I see never a
2: face, and hear nary a word.
5: But will follow them all the same.
2: Up, up, up the eerie column slithered, and he saw that all the travellers were converging towards the top of a high hill in the centre of the town, where perched a great white church. There was an open space around the church, partly a churchyard with spectral shafts and partly a half-paved square swept nearly bare of snow by the wind. Death fires danced over the tombs, revealing gruesome vistas, though queerly failing to cast any shadows of the throng that was now slipping speechlessly into this church. Spirit, I don't want to go.
5: Look, even my great-grandfather Phillips doesn't want to go. See how he hangs back? These are things past. The past cannot hurt you.
2: So there's no need for him to be afraid.
7: Oh, I didn't say that.
2: Lovecraft's thrice great-grandfather waited till the crowd had oozed into the black doorway until all the stragglers had followed. The old man was pulling at his sleeves, but he was determined to be the last. Then he finally went, the sinister man and old spinning woman before him, and Lovecraft and the spirit close behind. Crossing the threshold into that swarming temple of unknown darkness, Lovecraft turned once to look at the outside world as the churchyard phosphorescence cast a sickly glow On the hilltop pavement and as he did so he shuddered
5: spirit look the snow outside the door there's no footprints in it and we just i mean i just
7: time to go now follow your grandfather
2: the church was scarce lighted by all the lanterns that had entered it for most of the throng had already vanished they had streamed up the aisle between the high white pews to the trap door of the vaults, which yawned loathsomely open just before the pulpit, and were now squirming noiselessly in. Lovecraft followed dumbly down the footworn steps into the dank, suffocating crypt. The tale of that sinuous line of night marchers seemed very horrible, and as he saw them wriggling into a venerable tomb, they seemed more horrible still. In a moment, all descended an ominous staircase of rough-hewn stone. A narrow spiral, damp and peculiarly odorous, that wound endlessly down into the bowels of the hill, past walls of dripping stone blocks and crumbling mortar. It was a silent, shocking descent. Spirit, the
5: walls. They've been chiseled from solid rock. That troubles you? There's no sound. All these footfalls and there's no sound. And these passages going off. What are they?
7: Some kind of burrow? They are indeed numerous.
5: Excessively numerous. Like impious catacombs of nameless menace. And their pungent odor of decay grows unbearable. We must have passed down through the mountain and beneath the earth of Kingsport itself. I cannot believe that a town should be so aged and maggoty with
2: subterraneous evil. Why have you brought me here? Shh! Behold! Suddenly there spread out before him the boundless vista of an inner world, a vast fungus shore, litten by a belching column of sick greenish flame and washed by a wide, oily river that flowed from abysses frightful and unsuspected to join the blackest gulfs of immemorial ocean. He looked at that unhallowed Erebus of Titan toadstools, leprous fire and slimy water, and saw the cloaked throng forming a semicircle around the blazing pillar, and his own thrice great grandfather joined them. Spirit, it's the you right?
7: Indeed. Older than man and fated to survive him. The primal rite of the solstice and of spring's promise beyond the snows. The rite of fire in evergreen, light in music.
2: and in the stygian grotto he watched them do the right and adore the sick pillar of flame and throw into the water handfuls gouged out of the viscous vegetation which glittered green in the chlorotic glare and he saw something amorphously squatted far away from the light piping noisomely on a flute Things moved in the darkness, but what frightened him most was that flaming column, spouting volcanically from depths profound and inconceivable, casting no shadows as healthy flame should, and coating the nitrous stone above with a nasty, venomous verdigris. For in all that seething combustion no warmth lay, but only the clamminess of death and corruption. The old man who had led him now squirmed to a point directly beside the hideous flame and made stiff ceremonial motions to the semicircle he faced. At certain stages of the ritual, they did groveling obeisance, especially when he held above his head that abhorrent necronomicon that he had taken with him. Then the old man made a signal to the half-seen flute player in the darkness. Spirit, that
5: accursed flute, I feel that it calls to something, something horrible. Behold! Behold!
2: Lovecraft sank to the lichened earth, transfixed with dread not of this nor any world, but only of the mad spaces between the stars. Out of the unimaginable blackness beyond the gangrenous glare of that cold flame, out of the Tartarian leagues through which that oily river rolled uncanny, unheard and unsuspected, There flopped rhythmically a horde of tamed, trained, hybrid-winged things that no sound eye could ever wholly grasp or sound brain ever wholly remember. They were not altogether crows, nor moles, nor buzzards, nor ants, nor vampire bats, but something Lovecraft would never wish or be able to recall. They flopped, limply along, half with their webbed feet and half with their membranous wings, and as they reached the throng of celebrants, the cowled figures seized and mounted them and rode off one by one along the reaches of that unlighted river into pits and galleries of panic where poison springs feed frightful and undiscoverable cataracts. The old spinning woman had gone with the throng, and the old man remained alone with Lovecraft's grandfather. The old man produced his stylus and tablet, and Lovecraft was close enough to read what it said.
5: I am the true deputy of your fathers who had founded the Yule worship in this ancient place. It was decreed I should come back, and that the most secret mysteries were yet to be performed.
2: And then the old man pulled from his loose robe a seal ring and a watch, both bearing Lovecraft's family arms. I know from family papers that these
5: tokens were buried with my great-great-great-great-grandfather in 1698.
2: Then the old man drew back his hood to reveal his face, but Lovecraft only shuddered.
5: Spirit! No, it's merely a waxen mask, devilishly crafted to bear a family resemblance. The ring and watch are horrible proof. I wish to see no other! Why?
7: Do you not relish the ancient ways? See now, your eldest
5: ancestor.
2: And with a sudden motion, the mute old man dislodged the waxen mask from what should have been his head.
5: Ah! Spirit, remove me from this place.
7: I told you these were shadows of the things that have been. That they are what they are. Do not blame me.
5: Remove me. I cannot bear it. Leave me. Take me back. Haunt me no longer. No, let me. Let me. Oh. oh, at last, my own room, spirit, huh, gone at last, oh, what a marvelous vision, what a tale, this is what I needed, where's my pen, I, I must write.
2: Stave three, the second of the three spirits, huh, the haunting hour
5: again. Have I slept all through the day and into another night? What shall I face now?
2: Now being prepared for almost anything, Lovecraft was not by any means prepared for nothing. And consequently, when the bell had struck and no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. Five minutes, ten minutes, a quarter of an hour went by, yet nothing came. All this time he sat at his desk, writing feverishly. But with each passing minute, he was sorely vexed with the notion that some... Apparition would come for him. The notion gained in strength, until at length he became convinced that some ghost must surely be waiting outside his door in the hall, or was perhaps ever so slowly creeping up the stairs. At length he arose, went to his door, and stepped out onto the landing, his door, as was its habit, swinging shut behind him. He was greeted only by darkness.
5: Aunt Lillian, Aunt
2: Annie? He returned to his room, and as his hand reached for the knob, He heard a voice. Lovecraft! Enter! It was his own room, there was no doubt about that. But it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove, from every part of which bright, gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflected back the light, and a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney. Heaped up on the floor to form a kind of throne with turkeys, geese, great joints of meat, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, donuts, eclairs, cupcakes, and heaps of ice cream in a glorious array of colors. In an easy state upon this couch there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch in a shape not unlike Plenty's horn, and held it up, high up, to shed its light on Lovecraft as he came peeping round the door. Come in! Come in and know me better, man! (laughs) Lovecraft entered timidly, looking past the feast which now filled his room. And though the spirit's eyes were clear and kind, he did not like to meet them. I am the ghost of Solstice Present. Look upon me! Lovecraft reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple green robe or mantle, bordered with white fur. Its feet... Observable beneath, the ample folds of the garment were also bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanor, and its joyful air. You have never seen the likes of me before. Certainly not.
5: Spirit, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion and received an extraordinary inspiration for a tale. Perhaps tonight will be as favorable.
2: Perhaps! Touch my robe! Lovecraft did as he was told and held it fast.
5: We're flying. (laughs) We're flying through the night sky. It's marvelous. We're going on a journey. To where? Do you not recognize it? That city. No, it's not Providence. The harbor? That must be the Charles there. We've come to Boston. Right you are. It's magnificent. I don't get out of Providence much. But why Boston? I am the ghost of Solstice present. I am charged with showing that which is. But why Boston? I don't know that building. You might have. The Boston Fine Arts Club. No, spirit, I don't... Say, who are those chops who approach this fine Christmas day? Well,
8: I said to her, I'm sorry it wasn't turpentine, but my brush has never been cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> you
5: cab. Why, that's my neighbor, Harry Thurber, and that must be the artist friend he mentioned. What was that name? Richard Upton Pickman.
8: So glad you could make it up today, Thurber. I have some new works I'm eager to show you, and I've missed the pleasure of your company. Ha! Huh. I tried to
0: get my neighbor, the one I told you about, Lovecraft, to come up for the trip to... I think you two would have hit it off. Ah, Family obligations? Not at all. No wife or children, and his parents are dead. He has two lovely aunts, but he can't be bothered with them. I sometimes think he's the sort who would rather sit alone with his pen and write his friend's letters rather than see them in person. Poor
8: chap, eh? (laughs) His loss. Well, here we are. I'm surprised they'd be open Christmas Day. Oh, it's always open to members. Some of the wiggy-wigs here, you'd think they'd never go home. (laughs) Ah! Callahan, my man. Uh, Take our coats, will you? Uh, This is my guest, Mr. Thurber. Sir? I thought I'd show him some of my new paintings I'd sent over. Very
3: good, Mr. Pickman.
8: Where'd they hang them?
3: The Mather Salon, sir. I'll let Mr. Bosworth know you're here.
8: This way. A bit of a letdown they've put them in here. Hardly enough room to get them all up. Now, here we are.
2: Pickman! Your painting! Great! God. It takes profound art and profound insight into nature to create works such as Thurber and Lovecraft now beheld. Any magazine cover hack can splash paint around wildly and call it a nightmare or a witch's Sabbath or a portrait of the devil. But only a great painter can make such a thing really scare or ring true. That's because only a real artist knows the actual anatomy of the terrible or the physiology of fear. The exact sort of lines and proportions that connect up with latent instincts or hereditary memories of fright. And the proper color contrasts and lighting effects to stir the dormant sense of strangeness. Anyone can feel it. A fuselli really brings a shiver, while a cheap ghost story frontispiece merely makes us laugh.
5: Spirit, I've never seen anything like it. This Pikmin is a genius, but Pikmin was not happy with what he saw in that salon. This is an outrage. Thurber, wait here! There's something he's caught beyond life that he's able to make us catch for a second. Doré had that quality, Syme has it, Angarola of Chicago has it, and Pikmin has it.
8: None of the other pieces? Sir, those paintings were blasphemies. Appalling, if you ask me! I didn't ask you! Gentlemen, may I introduce Harrison Thurber, a collector from Providence? Uh, Dr. Eustace Reed. I'm on the club's
6: board. Joe Minot, the club curator.
8: Nicholas Bosworth, club president. What seems to be the problem? The problem? They're refusing to display my newest works. They only put this one up in this shuttered closet. And I objected to that. You
6: would. The technique in this piece is extraordinary, Pickman. But the
9: subject matter is... Too much for you? Pickman! See here! Other members find your work
8: objectionable. You've been warned on many occasions. Yes, yes, I know. Pickman, they're too morbid. Pickman, they're ungodly. Your paintings do not please the eye, sir. They are made merely to shock and horrify. Naturalism is not
6: suited to such ghastly subjects. This ghoul feeding, is it? It's clearly the imaging of a diseased fancy. A weak mind pleading for help.
5: That criticism sounds familiar.
8: What would you know? You wouldn't know truth in painting if it crawled off the canvas and bit you on the- Richard! How dare you, sir! Mr. Pickman, we know that neither you nor your works are suitable for this establishment. I couldn't agree more. Get out, sir, and take this necrophagus. You
6: are barred, Pickman. Callahan, fetch Mr. Pickman's
8: coat and show these gentlemen the door. Harry, take the painting, will you? Certainly. Gentlemen, I cannot describe the pleasure I take in severing my connection with this organization.
0: Awfully sorry, Pickman. Not much of the milk of human kindness flowing in there. Ha!
8: Cretins. I'm glad to be rid of them. If those paintings made them shudder, imagine if they'd seen some of my more important work. Yes, indeed. Still. Come on, old boy. What do you say we head back to my place? We'll have a bite, and I'll show you the studio. I think you'll enjoy the pictures, for as I've said, I've let myself go a bit there. (laughs) It's no vast tour, but it's best we go on foot. We can take the shuttle at the south station for Battery Street, and after that, the walk isn't much. Oh, yes. That would be grand. Come on. Pickman, I
0: thought you had a studio near here with the fashionable Newberry Street crowd.
8: Ha! There are things that won't do for Newberry Street, Things that are out of place here and that can't be conceived here anyhow. It's my business to catch the overtones of the soul. And you won't find those in a parvenu set of artificial streets on made land. Back bay's too new? If there are any ghosts here, they're the tame ghosts of a salt marsh and the shallow cove. And I want human ghosts. The ghosts of beings highly organized enough to have looked on hell and known the meaning of what they saw. I see. The place for the artist to live is the North End. God, man. Don't you realize that places like that weren't merely made, but actually grew? Generation after generation lived and felt and died there. And in days when people weren't afraid to live and feel and die. I can show you houses that have stood two centuries and a half and more. Houses that have witnessed what would make a modern house crumble into powder.
5: You know, Spirit, I rather like this fellow.
8: Hmm. Pity you didn't come to meet him moderns know of life and the forces behind it you call the salem witchcraft a delusion but i'll wager my four times great grandmother could have told you things look here do you know the whole north end once had a set of tunnels that kept certain people in touch with each other's houses and the burying ground and the sea let them prosecute and persecute above ground Things went on every day that they couldn't reach, and voices laughed at night that they couldn't place. There's a tunnel system in North Boston? Why, man, out of ten surviving houses built before 1700, I'll wager that in eight I can show you something queer in the cellar. There's hardly a month that you don't read of workmen finding bricked-up arches and wells leading nowhere in this or that old place. But why? I mean, what are they for? There were witches and what their spells summoned. Pirates and what they brought in from the sea, smugglers, privateers. I tell you, people knew how to live and how to enlarge the bounds of life in the old times. This wasn't the only world a bold and wise man could know.
5: I agree. Spirit, I'm sure this Pikmin and I could be great friends. Alas, you cherish your solitude.
8: And to think of today in contrast, with such pale pink brains that even a club of supposed artists gets shudders and convulsions if a picture goes beyond the feelings of a Beacon Street tea table.
0: Yes, they can't handle more than a bowl of fruit or a vase of lilies.
8: See here, you understand me. In my studio at home, I can catch the night spirit of antique horror and paint things that I couldn't even think of in Newbury Street. Of course. An artist must have inspiration. Just so. I decided long ago that one must paint terror as well as beauty from life. So I did some exploring in places where I had reason to know terror lives.
5: He's right, Spirit. We seem to be passing into a very unsavory neighborhood. These people are- (laughs) Never fear, Lovecraft.
8: They can't see you. It isn't so very far as distance goes, but it's centuries away as the soul goes. I took it because of the queer old brick well in the cellar, one of the sort I told you about. The windows are boarded up, but I like that all the better, since I don't want daylight for what I do. I paint in the cellar where the inspiration is thickest, but I've other rooms furnished on the ground floor. Not much further now. You like the setting, Lovecraft.
5: These ancient houses, they must have been standing in Cotton Mather's time. Look there. See that? It's the peaked roof line of the almost-forgotten pre gambril type. Though antiquarians tell us there are none left in Boston. Hmm. Interesting. They're going to that house. Look, a worm-eaten ten-paneled door. Oh, spirit. Why did I not go with Thurber?
8: Hold on. Let me light a lamp. Ah, there we are. Make yourself at home, Thurber. Here, I'll pour us a drink. You can take a gander at some of the
0: paintings. (gasps) Pikmin, my God. You like them? Well, I can see why you can't exhibit them.
8: I thought I was hard boiled, but this. (laughs) Yes, I've always liked that one. Here, have some brandy. Thank you.
2: Mm. Now let me see more. (gasps) Spirit, they're astonishing. The awful, the blasphemous horror, and the unbelievable loathsomeness and moral fetter of the paintings came from simple touches quite beyond the power of words to classify. Uh, the backgrounds were mostly old churchyards, deep woods, cliffs by the sea, brick tunnels, ancient panelled rooms, or simple vaults of masonry. The madness and monstrosity lay in the figures in the foreground, for Pickman's morbid art was preeminently one of demoniac portraiture. These figures were seldom completely human, but often approached humanity in varying degree. Most of the bodies, while roughly bipedal, had a forward slumping and a vaguely canine cast. They were usually feeding. I won't say on what.
8: Oh! All right there, Thurber. I'll have supper on in a moment. Supper? How can I eat seeing these creatures of yours... Eating! I didn't take you as one to be squeamish, Harry. I'm not a three-year-old kid,
0: Pikmin, but these faces, those accursed faces, they leer and slaver out of the canvas with the very breath of life. You've waked the fires of hell in pigment.
8: Why, thank you. Looks like you could use a refill.
1: Now this one.
8: Ah, the lesson. Yes?
0: It's, well... Are you implying...
2: Oh, dear Lord! (laughs) The canvas before them showed a squatting circle of nameless dog-like things in a churchyard, teaching a small child how to feed like themselves. The price of a changeling. The old myth about how the weird people leave their spawn in cradles in exchange for the human babes they steal. Pickman was showing what happens to those stolen babes, how they grow up. And this one, my God! "'That's you, Pickman!' "'It was an ancient Puritan interior, with the family sitting about while the father read from the scriptures. "'Every face but one showed nobility and reverence, but that one reflected the mockery of the pit. "'It was that of a young man in years, and no doubt belonged to a supposed son of that pious father, "'but in essence it was the kin of the unclean things, it was their changeling.' And in a spirit of supreme irony, Pickman had given the features a very perceptible resemblance
8: to his own. Come on now, enough of colonial New England. Take a look at my modern studies in here. Oh! You all right there, old man? I, ah, uh, yes. Oh. <laughs> I'm glad you find them moving. God, how
2: that man can paint. There was a study called Subway Accident, in which a flock of the vile things were clambering up from some unknown catacomb through a crack in the floor of the Boston Street subway and attacking a crowd of people on the platform. Another showed a dance on Copse Hill among the tombs with the background of today. Then there were any number of cellar views, with monsters creeping in through holes and rifts in the masonry, and grinning as they squatted behind barrels or furnaces and waited for their first victims to descend the stairs. Shall I bring you a touch more brandy, Thurber? Hm. They're
0: terrifying because of... Yes? The utter inhumanity and callous cruelty that must live in you. You'd have to be a relentless enemy of all mankind to take such glee in the torture of brain and flesh and the degradation of the mortal tenement. (laughs) They're terrifying because of their very greatness. You hide nothing. Nothing is blurred, distorted, or conventionalized. Outlines are sharp and lifelike, and details are almost painfully defined. And the faces. You've captured pandemonium itself, crystal clear in stark objectivity. That's it. You're not a fantasist or romanticist at all. No, you've coldly and sardonically reflected some stable, mechanistic, and well-established horror world that you see fully, brilliantly, squarely, and unfalteringly.
5: Lovecraft would have loved this. He's right, spirit. One thing is clear. Pikmin is in every sense, in conception and in execution, a thorough, painstaking, and almost scientific realist. Were it not for my penury I would become his chief patron.
8: Enough now. Come, let's eat. We'll see the studio after. Come in, sit down. Here, I'll pour you another. Ah, and who is this? I wouldn't have taken you as the type for pets, Pickman. Ah, a little black kitten with one white paw. Yes, he turned up one day. He's quite friendly and I'm glad to have his help with the rats. I call him Tiny Tim. Why, hello, Tiny Tim.
5: <laughs> I'm very fond of cats, Spirit.
0: Oh, I do wish Lovecraft had come along for all this. Your work, well, it's challenging to me, but he's the sort for whom no morbid horror is too much. I've read a couple of his stories. You'd love them, Pickman. His tales are as atmospheric as your paintings. He could stand to rein in his rather stilted vocabulary, but I think he's really got potential. Well, where is he? He should have come up. Oh, he's one of those folks who wants to sit in a chair and watch life pass him by.
5: No, I'm not. If only they could hear you.
0: Maybe one of these days
8: he'll come around. I hope he will. Would you care for some ice cream? I have some in the icebox. Marvelous! Ice cream? My favorite? Spirit,
5: show me no more. Conduct me home. Why do you delight to torture me? There is more
2: to see. And on this word, Lovecraft found himself suddenly in the cellar with Pikmin and Thurber, their holiday feast over.
0: My studio. Ah, you've got a lot of pieces in the works. I see, so you draw them out on the canvas, create your composition like this one.
8: Very precise. That's right. What's the camera for? I use it in taking scenes for backgrounds. So that I can paint them from photographs in the studio instead of carting my outfit around the town for this or that view, a photograph can be quite as good as an actual scene or model for sustained work. I use them often. Yeah. Say, are you all right? Here, tell me what you think of this. Oh, 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 oh.
2: It was a colossal and nameless blasphemy with glaring red eyes, and it held in bony claws a thing that had been a man, gnawing at the head as a child nibbles at a stick of candy. Its position was a kind of crouch, and as one looked, one felt that at any moment it might drop its present prey and seek a juicier morsel. But it wasn't even the fiendish subject that made it such an immortal fountainhead of all panic. And not that, nor the dog face with its pointed ears, bloodshot eyes, flat nose, and drooling lips. It it wasn't the scaly claws, nor the mold-caked body, nor the half-hoofed feet.
8: No! Thurber, try to contain yourself. It's best not to yell down here. It's not the
5: painting that has Thurber so frightened, Lovecraft. No? What then?
8: See that curled photograph. Thumbtacked oh. to the- Shh!
5: Oh.
8: <laughs> <laughs> Silence, Daniel! Where
5: are you going? What is that gun when for? You?
8: Shh! cellar has a lot of... Vermin. Stay here.
5: The photograph. Let me see it. Pikmin, come back! Spirit, this isn't a photo of any background. It's the creature! This was Pickman's model, standing in this very
1: room. Spirits, this, this is a photograph from
2: life. And in an instant, Lovecraft found himself returned to his own bedroom in Providence. Lovecraft looked about for the ghost, but saw it not. And just as quickly, he was back at his desk, pen in hand, eager to record the tale of Boston's ghoulish artist. As the stroke of the bell ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Mason Farley, and lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom coming towards him. Stave Four, the last of the four spirits. The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. Its form was blacker than the darkest night, gaunt, tall, and rubbery. Upon its head were two curving, black horns, and behind it a long, thin tail undulated. But most troubling of all is that where its face should have been, the features were but flat and smooth, a faceless face. When it came near him, Lovecraft bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which this spirit moved it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was tall and stately when it came beside him, and its mysterious presence filled Lovecraft with a solemn dread. He knew no more, for the spirit neither spoke nor moved.
5: Am I in the presence of the ghost of Solstice yet to come? The spirit answered not, but pointed onward with its hand. You are about to show me shadows of the things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us. Is that so, Spirit?
2: Although well used to ghostly company by this time, Lovecraft feared the silent shape so much that his legs trembled beneath him, and he found that he could hardly stand when he prepared to follow it. Lovecraft was thrilled with a vague, uncertain horror to know that somehow this ghost looked upon him without any eyes, while he, though he stretched his own to the utmost, could see nothing but a face of featureless black. Ghost of the future!
5: I fear you more than any spectre I have seen. But as I know your purpose is to do me good, I am prepared to bear you company, and do it with a thankful heart. Will you not speak to me? No mouth, of course. Well, lead on! The night is waning fast, and it is precious time to me, I know. Lead on, Spirit! The
2: Phantom moved toward Lovecraft, and in a moment, its hugely strong arms gripped him tight, strong fingers tickling against his ribs, and in a moment, they were gone. The two emerged from a vortex of swirling mists on the inside of a great stone castle of tremendous age. Spirit, where are we? This looks more like the past, than. The Ghost raised its shiny black hand, and Lovecraft was silent. Before them, a lone figure moved slowly down the corridor, speaking quietly. A hooded cloak concealed the speaker's face, but its words were unmistakable. Unhappy
3: is he to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness. Wretched is he who looks back upon lone hours in vast and dismal chambers, with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books, or upon awed watches in twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic, and vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods have given to me, to me, the dazed, the disappointed, the barren, the broken. Spirit, he speaks
5: to himself. Has he no one with whom he can share his thoughts?
3: I know not where I was born, save that the castle was infinitely old and infinitely horrible, full of dark passages and having high ceilings where the eye could find only cobwebs and shadows. The stones in the crumbling corridors seemed always hideously damp, and there was an accursed smell everywhere as of the piled-up corpses of dead generations. It was never light, so that I used sometimes to light candles and gaze steadily at them for relief. Nor was there any sun outdoors, since the terrible trees grew high above the topmost accessible tower. There was one black tower which reached above the trees into the unknown outer sky, but that was partly ruined and could not be ascended, save by a well-nigh impossible climb up the sheer wall, stone by stone. He's an outsider. I feel for him, Spirit. I must have lived years in this place, but I cannot measure the time. Beings must have cared for my needs, yet I cannot recall any person except myself. I think that whoever nursed me must have been shockingly aged, since my first conception of a living person was that of somebody mockingly like myself, yet distorted, shriveled, and decaying like the castle. To me, there was nothing grotesque in the bones and skeletons that strewed some of the stone crypts deep down among the foundations. I fantastically associated these things with everyday events, and thought them more natural than the colored pictures of living beings which I found in many of the moldy books. From such books I learned all that I know. No teacher urged or guided me, and I do not recall hearing any human voice in all those years. My aspect was a matter equally unthought of. For there were no mirrors in the castle, and I merely regarded myself by instinct as akin to the youthful figures I saw drawn and painted in the books. I felt conscious of youth, because I remembered so little. What a pitiable soul,
2: Spirit.
5: But why can I not see his face?
2: At this, the gaunt black ghost merely raised its hand to cease Lovecraft's questioning.
3: Outside, across the putrid moat and under the dark-mute trees, I would often lie and dream for hours about what I read in the books, and would longingly picture myself amidst gay crowds in the sunny world beyond the endless forests. Once I tried to escape from the forest, but as I went farther from the castle, the shade grew denser and the air more filled with brooding fear, so that I ran frantically back lest I lose my way in a labyrinth of night and silence. Then, in the shadowy solitude, my longing for light grew so frantic that I could rest no more. And I lifted entreating hands to the single black ruined tower that reached above the forest into the unknown outer sky. And at last I resolved to scale that tower, fall though I might, since it were better to glimpse the sky and perish than to live without ever beholding day. In the dank twilight, I climbed the worn and aged stone stairs till I reached the level where they ceased and thereafter clung perilously to small footholds leading upward. Ghastly and terrible was that dead, stairless cylinder of rock, black, ruined and deserted, and sinister with startled bats. I shivered as I wondered why I did not reach the light and would have looked down had I dared. All at once I felt my head touch a solid thing, and I knew I must have gained the roof or at least some kind of floor. In the darkness, I raised my free hand and tested the barrier, till finally I found a trapdoor, leading to a level stone surface of greater circumference than the lower tower, no doubt the floor of some lofty and capacious observation chamber. I pushed it open and crawled through carefully, and the heavy slab fell back into place. Spirit, what is this awful place? Believing I was now at a prodigious height, far above the accursed branches of the wood, I dragged myself up from the floor and fumbled about for windows that I might look for the first time upon the sky and the moon and stars of which I had read. But on every hand I was disappointed, since all that I found were vast shelves of marble bearing odious oblong boxes of disturbing size. More and more I reflected and wondered what hoary secrets might abide in this high apartment so many eons cut off from the castle below. Then unexpectedly my hands came upon a doorway, where hung a portal of stone, rough with strange chiseling. It was the purest ecstasy I have ever known, for shining tranquilly was the radiant full moon, which I had never before seen save in dreams, and in vague visions I dared not call memories passing cloud veiled the beautiful moon, and it was still very dark when I reached a grating, which I tried carefully and found unlocked, but which I did not open, for fear of falling from the amazing height to which I had climbed. Then the moon came out. The sight itself was as simple as it was stupefying, for it was merely this. Instead of a dizzying prospect of treetop seen from a lofty eminence, there stretched around me beyond the grating nothing less than the solid ground decked and diversified by marble slabs and columns and overshadowed by an ancient stone church whose ruined spire gleamed spectrally in the moonlight spirit the whole castle was beneath half unconscious i staggered out upon the white gravel path that stretched away in two directions my mind stunned and chaotic as it was still held the frantic craving for light I neither knew nor cared whether my experience was insanity, dreaming, or magic, but was determined to gaze on brilliance and gaiety at any cost. I knew not what my surroundings might be, though as I continued to stumble along I became conscious of a kind of fearsome, latent memory. Hours must have passed before I reached what seemed to be my goal, a venerable ivied castle in a thickly wooded park, maddeningly familiar yet full of perplexing strangeness to me. But what I observed with chief interest and delight were the open windows, gorgeously ablaze with light and sending forth sounds of the gayest revelry. Advancing to one of these, I looked in and saw an oddly dressed company indeed, making merry and speaking brightly to one another. I had never seemingly heard human speech before and could guess only vaguely what was said. Some of the faces seemed to hold expressions that brought up incredibly remote recollections. Others were, utterly alien at last spirit this poor soul i now stepped through the low window into the brilliantly lighted room stepping as i did so from my single bright moment of hope to my blackest convulsion of despair and realization (laughs) the cries were shocking and as i stood in the brilliant apartment alone and dazed listening to their vanishing echoes I trembled at the thought of what might be lurking near me, unseen. At a casual inspection, the room seemed deserted, but when I moved towards one of the alcoves, I thought I detected a presence there. A hint of motion beyond the golden arch doorway leading to another and somewhat similar room. As I approached the arch, I began to perceive the presence more clearly.
5: Spirit, that archway doesn't lead to another room. That reflection, it's a...
3: I beheld in full frightful vividness the inconceivable, indescribable, and unmentionable monstrosity which had, by its simple appearance, changed a merry company to a herd of delirious fugitives. I cannot even hint what it was like, for it was a compound of all that is unclean, uncanny, unwelcome, abnormal, and detestable. It was the ghoulish shade of decay, antiquity, and dissolution, the putrid, dripping eidolon of unwholesome revelation, the awful bearing of that which the merciful earth should always hide. God knows it was not of this world, or no longer of this world. Yet to my horror I saw in its eaten away and bone-revealing outlines a leering, abhorrent travesty on the human shape.
5: Spirit, no, it's a mirror. He's seen himself. That face, can
3: can it be? I did not shriek. But all the fiendish ghouls that ride the night wind shrieked for me, as in that same second there crashed down upon my mind a single fleeting avalanche of soul-annihilating memory. I recognized, most terrible of all, the unholy abomination that stood leering before me as I withdrew my sullied fingers from its own.
5: Spirit, it is my face. I see, I see, the case of this unhappy man might be my own. My life tends that way now, alone and isolated. Say it shall not be so, I beg you.
2: The ghost fell upon Lovecraft, clutching him in his fearsome jet-black fingers. In an instant, they were transported to another abandoned churchyard. There, the black figure stood among the moonlit graves and at length pointed his long, slender arm to one.
5: Which of these poor souls would you have me look upon, Spirit? Ah, oh, Richard Upton Pickman. Here? A man of such talents? Unknown and forgotten,
2: left to moulder in this dismal field. Next to Pickman's slab, Lovecraft espied a tiny pile of delicate bones, surmounted by a feline skull. Spirit, no. These are the bones of Tiny Tim, that faithful kitten.
5: Oh, spirit, say it is not so.
2: The implacable spirit merely pointed to the broken-off end of Pickman's slab, where steps leading into the charnel darkness were revealed. Spirit, do you mean for me to enter this grave? And though the spirit had no face, the meaning of his gesture could not be misconstrued, and Lovecraft steeled himself and slowly began to descend into the crypt.
5: I've often imagined such things, spirit, but to enter this necropolis
2: in person. And as the darkness enveloped Lovecraft, he was in another instant fully transported.
5: Where have you brought me? Dawn is breaking. Wait, I know this place. Swan Point Cemetery, we're in Providence. And ah, yes, the graves of my poor parents. I wish I had known you better. I'm sorry, I've failed you. I know you wanted me to make something of myself. I'm a failure as a writer. I wish I had... Spirit, what marker do you point to now? Howard Phillips
2: Lovecraft. Spirit, this holds no fear to me, for all men must... But at this, the gaunt and faceless black figure pointed again more insistently at the simple granite marker. I am Providence.
5: I must say, it's a pleasing epitaph. What's this? A book. The Outsider and Other Tales by H.P. Lovecraft. And this? It's like a green slipper with eyes and tentacles. Pages of sheet music marked, Thank you, H.P. Hmm. A prismatic silver disc with a central hole. An all-talking H.P. Lovecraft
2: motion picture? Clearly this is the future. Lovecraft's mind reeled as he absorbed what appeared to be tokens of respect and admiration left upon his grave. Could this be true? Spirit, tell me. I implore
5: you. These visions, have you shown me what will be or what may be? Spirit... Hear me. I am not the man I was. You have shown me this. There must be hope for me. You have shown me pity.
2: Assure me that I yet may achieve these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. The rubbery black figure fell upon Lovecraft and in a moment he found himself again alone in his room. Stave five. The end of it. Lovecraft looked about in wonderment. Yes, it was his own room. The bed was his own, the typewriter, the desk, all were his own. Best and happiest of all, the time before him was his own, to make amends in.
5: Spirits, I understand you. Was it all a dream? Or reality? What's the difference? I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. Oh, Mason Farley, or whatever your real name is... Festival, solstice, and Christmas time. Be praised for this. (laughs) I don't know what to do. I'm as merry as a schoolboy, a jolly solstice, and, yes, a merry Christmas to
2: everybody. A happy new year to all the world. (laughs) Really, for a man who had been out of practice for so many years, it was a splendid laugh, a most illustrious laugh, the father of a long, long line of brilliant laughs. I don't know what day of the month it
5: is. I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. I don't know
2: anything. Running to the window, he opened it and put out his head. No fog, no mist, clear, bright, jovial, stirring, cold, cold, piping the blood to dance to. Golden sunlight, heavenly sky, sweet, fresh air, merry bells, oh, glorious, glorious.
5: You there, young man, what's today? Huh? What's today, my fine fellow? Today? Why, Christmas Day, you goof. It's Christmas Day. I haven't missed it. The spirits have done it all in one long night. Young man, do you know where the drugstore is? Are you kidding me? Of course I do. An intelligent boy. Run to the drugstore and bring back tinsel and candy canes. All you can carry. I'll pay you a dollar. Sure, mister. We can celebrate Solstice and Christmas both. Oh, Thurber, I hope I'm not too late. Howard, are you all right? Merry Christmas, my dear Aunt Lillian.
7: Oh, well, thank you, Howard.
4: And the
5: joy of the solstice season to you, dear Aunt Annie. Mm.
4: Howard, are you feeling all right? Shall I make you some oatmeal?
5: I've never felt better, but I, I must dash out right now to catch my friend.
4: A friend? Howard, I'm going to make a special holiday supper. You probably won't care.
5: What? No, no, you shall not. You two take marvelous care of me. Today, I shall prepare our Yuletide feast. Leave everything to me.
4: Are you sure you're all right?
5: Why, yes. I'll see you soon, dear Aunt Annie. Howard! Anon, dear Aunt Lillian. Oh, here's a dollar for a boy that will be coming by soon. And turn up the heat in here, won't you? It's freezing in here. From now on, I want warmth. Nothing but warmth.
7: Well, that was disturbing.
4: I hope he hasn't gone mad, the poor dear. (laughs)
5: Ah, Lovecraft! Merry Christmas! Come in, come in. I hope I'm not too late. For? To join you on the trip up to Boston. I've been short-sighted. I see now that I should travel more, for I keep providence in my heart and take it with me anywhere I go. I'll gladly accompany you to Boston or Salem or even New York if we don't stay too long. Ah, well, that's quite
0: a change of heart. But I'm afraid there's been a change of plans. Here, let me take your coat. Change of... My friend came down to visit me instead. Lovecraft, may I introduce you to Richard Peters, one of Boston's most daring artists.
5: Peters? Ah, yes. Pickman was but a dream name. How's that? Nothing, nothing. Mr. Peters, what a pleasure to make your acquaintance.
8: H.P. Lovecraft, at your service. How do you do? Thurber's told me about you and your writings. Ah, and who's this? Ah, that's my cat. Uh, Tiny Tim, meet Mr. Lovecraft.
5: Tiny Tim? All black with one white
8: paw? It's not possible. Oh yeah, sometimes they just have one spot of color.
2: And the tiny cat and Lovecraft looked intently into each other's eyes. And Lovecraft would have sworn!
8: The cat winked at him. Well, he certainly likes you.
2: I'm very fond of
5: cats. Where did you get him?
8: Oh, my neighbors, the Ulthars up in Boston, had a huge litter. It seems this little fellow adopted me. Well, sit, you two. Have some coffee. Thank
5: you, Harry. This is delightful. I'm a rather voluminous correspondent. It's quite a treat to sit among friends rather than just writing them.
8: Harry tells me you write uncanny stories, too. What are you working on?
5: A long night makes for rich dreams, and I've just had some extraordinary ones. In one, I returned to the snow-blanketed city of
2: Kingsborough. And among friends old and new, Lovecraft truly felt the joy of the season and a wave of inspiration to seize his own vision and to set to paper something truly Lovecraftian. He ended his visit inviting Thurber and Peters and Tiny Tim to join him and his aunts for the feast of Saturnalia which he himself would prepare. And with a spring in his step and real joy in his heart, Lovecraft visited the shops of Providence, buying ingredients for a banquet quite beyond his usual repast of beans on toast. And everywhere he went, a new Lovecraft greeted the world. Felicitations, madam.
4: Thank you, sir.
2: Greetings to you, good sir. Yeah, Merry Christmas to you. For a special friend, he procured a special holiday gift and crowned it with a Brumalian wish. Hello, Jasper. Felicitations of
5: the season upon thee. Ah. Thank you, Mr. Lovecraft. Didn't expect to see you here today. I wanted to bring by a little holiday cheer for you, sir. Oh, you didn't need to. With my thanks for keeping me well supplied with weird tales and astounding stories. A fruitcake? My favorite! Mr. Lovecraft, you shouldn't have. I thought your budget... My budget can't be better spent. And I wrote this for you. I guess I had a few extra words after all.
6: From the damnable shadows of madness, from the corpse ridden hollow of weir, comes a horrible message of gladness and a ghost guided poem of cheer. And the
5: gloom spouting pupil of Poe sends the pleasantest wish of the year. That's the stuff, Mr. L. Enjoy the season. And call me HP. my friends, you sound wonderful. Try these lyrics. Dance the cultists in their folly. Dance the cultists in their
3: folly. La, la 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 Tis the season to be jolly. Fa la la, 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 la.
6: That's it! La wonderful!
2: And returning home, Howard set to preparing a marvelous feast for his aunts and his friends. And at last, when the goose was roasted, the potatoes mashed, and the apple juice poured, all sat down together to feast. Harry, you sit here next to Aunt Lillian. Richard, you're there at the
8: end. I just wanted to thank you for inviting us over, and I have brought a small gift I hope you might enjoy.
4: Oh, is it one of your paintings? Open it, Howard. I'm opening. (laughs) Oh, Richard. It's wonderful. Let us see.
8: Oh, my.
7: Annie, let me. Ooh, it's positively sepulchral.
8: I call it the feasting of ghouls. (laughs) Uh, I guess it's not suitable.
4: Mr. Peters, you're going to fit right in in this house.
8: I love it.
5: Thank you. And now I'd like to propose a toast. I'd like to thank my dear aunts who both look after me and show such faith in me as a writer. I promise to keep writing in my own weird style, come what may, and royalties be damned. I offer my apologies to writers whose work I may have unfairly maligned in the past. As reparations to them, I promise to help any writer I can to find their voice. To my friends, I promise to go forth and enjoy the pleasure of their rich companionship. Now then, I... No, no, I haven't forgotten you, Tiny Tim. Here's a saucer of eggnog for you. May the gods bless us, everyone. (laughs) Lovecraft
2: was better than his word. He did it all, and infinitely more. He became a good friend, a generous mentor, and a dedicated artist, painting word pictures of cosmic fear and pitiless beauty that have yet to be surpassed and will inspire generations. And he had much further intercourse with spirits, but only in his dreams. You've been listening to a special holiday edition of Dark Adventure Radio Theatre, Brought to you by our sponsor, the New Jersey Fruitcake Company. Be sure to give the gift of Nujufru fruitcakes to your loved ones this Christmas season. They're the nuttiest. I'm Barnaby Dickens. Until next week, this is Dark Adventure Radio Theatre. Reminding you to never go anywhere alone. If it looks bad, don't look. And save the last bullet for yourself.
1: A Solstice Carol was adapted for radio and produced by Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman, based on works by H.P. Lovecraft and Charles Dickens. Original music by Troy Sterling Neese. The Dark Adventure Ensemble featured Leslie Baldwin, Sean Branny, Casey Camp, Mike Dallagher, Lucas Dixon, Jacob Andrew Lyle, Andrew Lehman, Barry Lynch, John A. McKenna, Grinnell Morris, Kevin Stidham, Josh Temke, and Time Winters. Tune in next week for... It crawled to Stonehenge, a shocking tale of unspeakable archaeology. Dark Adventure Radio Theater is a production of the HP LHS Broadcasting Group, a subsidiary of HP LHS Incorporated, copyright 1931. Plus 84.